This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of American Enough is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. When you're an officer in the Central Intelligence Agency or other elements of our intelligence community, you often don't talk about your work too publicly. You keep your head down, you work on behalf of the American people, and tirelessly you defend the homeland. For Ned Price, a career officer at the CIA and former top spokesperson at the National Security Council under President Obama, that all changed when he decided to quit his role in the CIA when President Trump came to power. It wasn't an easy decision, but it was a decision based on what intelligence gathering actually means for exporting the ideals of American identity and what being an American means around the world. Ned Price joins us today to answer a broader question of how everything from the CIA to foreign policy rhetoric to how our diplomacy is being conducted under this administration is shaping and retooling American identity. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. The American men and women who often serve our national security and protect the homeland daily often go unnoticed not because their work isn't patriotic or vital to our fundamental protections, but mostly because a good chunk of our national security apparatus and infrastructure is clandestine. It's not often celebrated in the papers. The presidential daily briefing that enumerates risks and challenges posed to the United States and the world are not front and center. And in many instances, we don't even know the names of officers and patriots that are serving on our behalf. But a lot of that changed at the outset of 2017. Shortly after President Trump was inaugurated, he had one of his first speeches not only to our defense community and our intelligence community, but frankly covered to the American people right outside of the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, famously against the backdrop of the Memorial Wall, which has stars for each fallen intelligence officer that served this country with honor and valor. President Trump quickly pivoted from the solemn nature of the work of the CIA, and started talking about the size of inauguration crowns, crowds and the extent of his victory over Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton. But it didn't stop there. Dossiers about his alleged involvement in relationships with the Russian government and activities while it was in Russia started emerging in the press. National security clearances and whether or not his own administration staff that he was selecting and curating were fit to be meriting or deserving of a security clearance were questioned in the public limelight. And then, drip by drip, intelligence conversations and allegations around the United States government with Russia started being exposed on the front page of everything from BuzzFeed to NPR. Further, President Trump even alleged that former President Obama actually was wiretapping him and eavesdropping. Never before in the history of the modern American presidency have issues that are typically clandestine and frankly quite wonky about intelligence gathering, intelligence in general, and intelligence process about the National Security Council within the United States, the CIA, and the National Security Agency been so publicly debated, hotly contested, and frankly Twitter trolled time and time again. But 
as this process comes on the forefront of America's imagination and mind, it's really important to recognize that the hard work of intelligence gathering and international engagement, whether you're a diplomat at the State Department, a CIA officer, or even an analyst at the NSA, really does impact the way American identity and the American story is told, not just here at home, not just through media or TV shows, but frankly abroad. The values that we export, the ideals that we strive for, and the human intelligence gathering that's core to our nation's security shapes the way that countries from Pakistan to Burma to China to the UK all view the United States. One such officer who served with distinction and valor under the CIA up through the transition of President Trump was Ned Price. Ned Price famously stepped down and was covered by the media for stepping down under the transition of President Trump. But before any aspect of his work was politicized, he actually served an extensive amount of time not only taking on the, the challenges of the CIA, but also representing the U.S. foreign policy posture at the helm of the National Security Council. He graduated summa cum laude from Georgetown University and the School of Foreign Service and obtained a master's degree from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. So for anyone assuming that someone after that degree, those set of degrees would go into the CIA and be so front and center, anyone would have told you that that would have been a little bit of a misstep in the way that CIA officers approach their work. But for Ned, the concept of preserving American identity and American moral authority was a bit more important than the politicization of this current presidency. Ned, welcome to American Enough. Thanks so much, Vikram. It's good to be here. So I, I kind of wanted to start with just a broad overview. Um, you know, everyone has seen shows ranging from from Homeland to House of Cards, and there's often depictions of what you know our national security apparatus is or isn't, um, w without necessarily going into what the work of an analyst or a desk officer might look like day to day. I'm just curious when you work in the intelligence space or the national security space, how important is the concept of America, the, the values that it ascribes, and frankly, the values that it aims to export to other republics, how important is that to the work of intelligence gathering or a broader foreign policy posture? Well, Vikram, it's incredibly important uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, I would actually uh, predate uh, my work and collectively our work uh, in the intelligence community to make the point that many of us went into that line of work with precisely that in mind. Uh, we certainly didn't go in it for the money. We didn't go in it for the recognition, far far from it. Um, we went in it because we believe, uh, again, collectively in America and her ideals, uh, having seen the sacrifices of our predecessors in these positions. And in my case, and in the case of my contemporaries, uh, having seen, and uh, in my specific case, lived through 9-11 uh, as a freshman uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, having been at college for about two weeks on that day. That was uh, another, you know, motivation uh, along that same line. Uh, once you are inside, you are surrounded by uh, the Americanness of uh, the institution, uh, especially an institution like CIA that is uh, steeped with history, and it just oozes history uh, in every uh, corner and nook and cranny of the headquarters building in Langley, Virginia. Uh, you see there are artifacts uh, in the museum from uh, America's battles against 
uh, the Third Reich and Nazis, America's involvement in other overseas conflicts like Korea and Vietnam, uh, up until uh, and including the post-9-11 conflicts. Uh, but it's not all just about conflict. I think that is oftentimes the headlines. But what uh, really motivates uh, and energizes uh, and gives American intelligence a leg up over our adversaries is the fact that many of our most important assets and assets, I'm using that in the intelligence sense, those whom the United States government recruits to its side, do it uh, for reasons of ideology, because they look to the United States uh, as a shining bright light, as a beacon, uh, oftentimes living under regimes or uh, adhering to groups uh, whose values are in contravention of their own and whose values are in stark contrast to ours. And so while, of course, money and ego and uh, other motivations sometimes factor into these clandestine relationships uh, with intelligence assets, it's ideology oftentimes that's the most important and the most effective uh, motivator when it comes to these relationships. And frankly, you know, as, as much as you or I or many others listening to this podcast in the United States may ascribe to many of the values um, of the American ideal, of the American pursuit in, in, in our democratic republic, uh, there may be countless others um, internationally that either question our approach or sort of the tactics that we invoke along the way to execute against those ideas. Um, th that may be an obvious statement, but specifically, you know, if you take a look at intelligence services, um, say out of Pakistan, you know, the ISI or out of the UK with MI5, um, there is a lot of cooperation when it it comes to the national security infrastructure uh, between allies, um, or I should say among allies, but there can also be a lot of uh, skepticism, cynicism, or, or distrust, frankly. How important is it that when we work with other intelligence agencies that we maintain a value system that you just described, or, or maybe put another way, um, to an intelligence service abroad, what does being an American look like? Sure. Well, you know, traditionally in the past, uh, the Americans have uh, been the ones to uh, establish a, a, a value system, a system of uh, morals and ethics um, within uh, even intelligence relationships. And there's there's a myth, uh, there's a false notion out there that uh, intelligence is uh, an amoral zone, that anything goes, and, and far from that. Uh, look, the, the fact of the matter is, especially post 9-11, uh, the United States uh, has had to work with intelligence services that have not always uh, and sometimes consistently have not uh, adhered to the highest standards of human rights. And, you know, I won't go into the list of countries, but uh, I'm sure most of your listeners could could name many of them. Uh, but the fact of the matter is what, that whenever intelligence services work with us, uh, us being the United States, the CIA, uh, our intelligence colleagues throughout the intelligence community, we insist that those values, those, those high degrees of uh, standards uh, when it comes to human rights, that they be upheld and that intelligence services uh, make representations and actually live up to those representations. And if we find that there are violations of that, uh, intelligence relationships can be broken, they can be restructured, aid can be revoked. Uh, so it is certainly a staple of 
all of these relationships. And again, the the CIA works in countries uh, where governments uh, uh, tend not to be representative, where the regime may be repressive. And if we start identifying ourselves with the worst of uh, a an undemocratic society, we lose uh, the moral high ground. But just as importantly, we lose that strategic edge and that comparative advantage. And we become uh, closely associated uh, with the worst and the darkest elements of a society uh, when, in fact, our work, our cooperation uh, with intelligence services, and of course, the same goes in the diplomatic realm with our State Department, but our work uh, with those regimes pushes them, tends to push them uh, in the right direction. You know, there's, there's, there, there's one other thing I, I, I would be remiss not to mention here. The CIA and uh, the United States government more broadly has not always lived up to America's highest ideals. Um, again, I keep going back to the post-9-11 period, but that's the, that's the one I, I lived through. The, the, the tactics um, and some of the strategies that were employed uh, post-9-11 that were requested by uh, the uh, administration in power at the time and that were implemented by the CIA, it's since sure. been widely concluded, and, and uh, President Obama himself has said, that they were in contravention of American values. But the the unique characteristic that is uh, that is uh, so very uh, unique to our own identity is the fact that we admit to that we we acknowledge our mistakes. And when it comes to that post 9-11 era, uh, President Obama reflected uh, the views, uh, of course, his own views and the views of his, of his administration. Uh, when he said that the so-called rendition, detention, and interrogation program uh, that the CIA ran at the behest of uh, the previous administration was one such tactic uh, that was in contravention of our values. It certainly involved and implicated tactics uh, that, as Americans, uh, we should never have. Uh, we should never have implemented. And so, countries, uh, of course, see us make mistakes from time to time. But just as importantly, they see us uh, fess up to those mistakes, uh, to acknowledge them, to learn from them, correct them, and to um, live up to the highest standards that we can at any one time. That's incredibly well put because that that concept of not just a lawmaker but but a country, you know, acknowledging what it's done to date, but also you know, what more it has to accomplish either by way of progress um, in a theater of war or progress in terms of closing any kind of more gaps in moral authority really help all of us remain honest and frankly uh, authentic when we do uh, our work around the country or governments represent the interests of their citizens around around the world. Um, but as I'm sure you observed in your time, um, in your public service, uh, that sense of how we are confronting the world ch stage, as well as how war is evolving, um, is dramatically changing. You know, you, you mentioned President Obama denouncing some of the tactics from President Bush on the on the torture side. Um, we also saw under President Obama um, a pretty high uptick, uh, not necessarily because it was what he was passionate about, but because the technology evolved in you know drone based. Uh, um, tactical engagement as opposed to boots on the ground in the Pakistani and Afghanistani borders. Um, we've also seen an increase under this president 
of really taking to brash, um, succinct, uh, perhaps not intentionally succinct, but capped by the number of characters Twitter allows him, uh, but brash kind of foreign policy statements that go toe-to-toe with individuals um, and heads of state around the world. And while, you know, the warfare of drones, for example, and the the warfare of rhetoric may be distinct in their own right, um, there's no doubt that the way our foreign policy is being conducted right now, principally under Trump, um, has dramatically altered the worldview of our own American allies um, and, and certainly our, uh, you know, our adversaries. I, I, my question is, how are the president's words uh, in your mind shaping the perception of this American ethos and ideal that you're talking about? You know, just recently, um, Theresa May, prime minister of the United Kingdom and President Trump got into a little uh, scuffle online over uh, Trump's retweeting of some uh, videos that called into question um, uh, Muslim behavior, and they were denounced and, and debunked as not even being valid videos. Uh, but the broader point is that when you have your head of state of the United States going toe-to-toe with other heads of state, um, it really does put our own allies in a precarious space of not really even knowing what American intent is going to be at 12 p.m. versus 12 a.m. Um, how is that going to impact um, not just the geopolitical landscape, but even our ability to safeguard the homeland correctly if you're a career CIA officer or NSA officer? Well, well I'd say a couple of things. Uh, first is that um, international publics uh, have long been accustomed to uh, separating and disaggregating the American public from the American government. Uh, I think we can all recall the early days of the Iraq War, uh, a highly unpopular uh, war uh, overseas, uh, and the Bush administration was uh, not widely liked uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, but the American people uh, and the American identity uh, retain the characteristics that uh, allowed us uh, to remain, again, that, that shining beacon, that, uh, that bright light. There are a couple things that 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 I think are different uh, about this case, unfortunately. Uh, The first is that unlike previous administrations, uh, I tend to see the Trump administration as in some ways bringing out the worst in the American people. Uh, And we can look at any number of episodes from what we saw in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and of course the aftermath uh, of that what we're seeing going on right now in the Alabama uh, Senate race, uh, the forces of uh, hate and division that have uh, been so empowered that are coming out not only online, but uh, in our streets, in our towns and cities uh, across the country. And it's it's not just coincidental. Um, my strong sense is that there's a causal relationship uh, between the Trump administration and uh, what we've seen. And mm-hmm. it's not just that we as Americans have seen this. The world has seen it. There was a there was an interesting anecdote uh, that I heard from President Trump's recent visit to China. Uh, President Trump and President Xi of China had just given a joint statement uh, where President Trump had uh, been faced with a couple questions about Roy Moore, as he consistently had uh, over the past couple of weeks. And as they were walking off stage and, and, and got out of public view, President Xi turned to President Trump and said, you know, who's this Roy Moore guy? And so, <laughs> you know, I think that's illustrative uh, of the fact that uh, our um, troubles here at home are not confined here at home, uh, that more and more uh, they're becoming known around the world. And the darker elements, I would say, of American society 
uh, are becoming um, more transparent, more transparent uh, to those watching from abroad and uh, for those uh, who previously had not seen such phenomena uh, emerge from American society. But, you know, there's, there's another uh, element here that I think is equally sad, and it's not something that I don't think we'll be able, we'll be able to recover from. You know, there were, um, I think there was a, a sense uh, previously uh, around the world that American democracy and American elections, uh, they were sound, they were safe, uh, they tended to lead to consensus candidates, even if those candidates tended not to be uh, super popular on the world stage, you know, they were they were at heart good people who were trying to do the best right. uh, for their country and for the world. Right. It was like the gold the standard election of, of elections. It, 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 exactly. Uh, w- with the election of Donald Trump, however, you know, I think the mold has been broken. And there's now a sense that America's elections, uh, you know, uh, uh, that have been ongoing for hundreds of years now, can, uh, in the end, produce a demagogue. A demagogue can end up on top, uh, someone who may not have the best interests of his country at heart, someone who certainly does not have uh, the best interests of the international community at heart, someone who certainly does not see how uh, success and leadership on the world stage can benefit both the United States uh, and the broader community. And so that's something that uh, we... I'm afraid won't be able to recover from um, because that genie is out of the bottle. And uh, with Trump in the Oval Office, it's it's impossible to put back. Particularly when I'm sure the answer to, um, you know, Xi's question by Trump wasn't a denunciation um, of, you know, sexual harassment or, or assault, but rather was probably a, a very brief, he's the next senator from Alabama in the United States. Right. And, and and that that becomes really really concerning because as you mentioned not only is our sort of dirty laundry if you will but frankly um, quickly evolving or frankly eroding a trust in moral authority uh, being exposed on the world stage but it's also going to shift the way that the rest of the global community views the leadership of this country and principally the leadership through the eyes of our president Donald Trump. I, I'm curious in your perspective, and I know that um, that you've commented and thought about this a lot um, in your civilian life, but all of the allegations that we see day by day, not just from the outset of of um, the the year, but even prior uh, to the the inauguration of the president, um, and then more acutely in recent in the past few weeks um, with the uh, news around former national security uh, advisor Michael Flynn to you know the laddering up or of of what Mueller is FBI director Mueller is or is not chasing after to to most recently I, I believe as of yesterday members of the the House and Senate Republican caucus um, going on a, a pretty coordinated smear campaign of the director of the FBI with ad hominem attacks you know attacking his his purity, his vigilance in this whole investigation. You know, I guess two broader questions, you know, how do we maintain trust in our own intelligence and fact-finding and and national security apparatuses um, or apparati if our own elected public officials are chipping away at the efficacy of the FBI or of the Department of Justice special counsel or appointed special counsel? And then I guess secondly, how are these Russia allegations really shaping the, the the perception of, of Trump um, and his ability to conduct foreign policy as the news continues to swirl over his head. 
On the first question, uh, you know, I spent uh, a year um, working in the CIA's uh, public affairs office, and uh, this was in the 2013-2014 timeframe. Uh, it was a time when America was respected on the world stage. Uh, it was a time when our economy was getting back to full swing uh, here at home. Uh, and so there were significant tailwinds behind us. And yet even then, uh, it was always uh, difficult <laughs> to defend uh, the reputation and the work of the CIA because there are so many uh, untruths, there are so many falsehoods, uh, there are so many uh, slanderous claims out there about what the CIA is and more probably what the intelligence community is and does. And of course, that became all the much more difficult uh, in the, not only under this administration, but even prior to the inauguration of President Trump. Uh, he went on the offensive uh, during the transition period um, when this uh, issue of the dossier that you referenced in your introduction uh, came to the fore. He took that as a personal uh, assault and affront to him, as he so often does, and he went back swinging, and he swung at the FBI, he swung at uh, the Department of Justice, he swung at uh, the intelligence community. Uh, at one point, uh, even comparing these actors to uh, to those from Nazi Germany. And so when our own elected leaders are doing this in the executive branch, and when we see a very similar tactic ongoing in Congress, and, and just yesterday, um, I was shocked uh, to see a member of Congress call out FBI officials by name and ask the FBI director uh, whether these individuals were loyal to the Trump administration. And that's something that we had That's right. Really and you're referring seen. to FBI director, the new FBI director, Ray. That's right. That's right. And uh, Representative Gohmert went uh, one by one through top FBI officials and asked uh, FBI Director Ray uh, about their loyalty, not to the country, uh, but to the Trump administration, something that had echoes of the McCarthy era, except uh, in one sense, the McCarthy era was almost more benign uh, because loyalty to country was being questioned, not to a party or to an administration. Uh, and so it becomes all the more difficult for people who care about um, our intelligence community, our law enforcement community, our system of justice uh, to go about um, protecting and defending them. But I think much more importantly, uh, it becomes much more difficult for them to do the work they're called upon. Uh, you know, the CIA and the intelligence community I think are somewhat advantaged uh, by the fact that they don't have a domestic remit, that their work uh, is conducted uh, overseas, but they still need the trust of the American people. They still need the trust of the American people. So the next time there is a high confidence assessment that uh, Russia is interfering in our elections or China is up to no good, uh, it, similarly in cyberspace, uh, or a terrorist group is on the verge of mounting an attack, they need that credibility to be able to warn not only policymakers, uh, but also the American people when appropriate. And Donald Trump uh, and his subordinates have systematically kept away at that credibility. And absent champions in the executive branch and in the legislative branch, uh, I'm not sure there is going to be, there, there are effective uh, substitutes uh, for surrogates. 
the intelligence community really can't defend itself. Uh, the FBI, similarly, is handcuffed, uh, no pun intended. Yesterday, you heard uh, Director Ray mount something of what I think was a, was a softball defense uh, after President Trump said the FBI was in tatters. Uh, but you get the sense that everyone is scared to go toe-to-toe with President Trump, even when it comes to something as basic as defending the integrity and the efficacy of the department or agency uh, that you lead. And that's, that's a really sad thing. Uh, you know, I think whenever this era of American uh, leadership, to use the term loosely, is over, there's going to have to be a, uh, a significant effort to, to rebuild that, to rebuild that reputation, to rebuild that credibility. Uh, I think the best thing that these institutions can do now is just to go about their work keep their head down, uh, allow uh, people uh, on the outside to do their best to come to their defense. Uh, But we're going to need uh, representatives in both of those branches of government who are going to do the same if we're going to uh, if we're going to repair the damage that's been done. Check out Sennheiser's latest Bluetooth in-ear headphones, the HD1 Free. Premium materials and flawless craftsmanship combined with stunning Sennheiser sound all in one small and wireless package. And we're not kidding. This makes a great gift. Learn more at Sennheiser.com. And our listeners can get a 25% discount with the code MouthMediaSen at checkout. That's MouthMedia, S-E-N-N. Unfortunately, as much as we want to, you know, repair the institution, the fabric of the country, the damage seems to, you know, get wider seemingly day by day. Uh, you know, just this morning, a CNN broke a story, um, an exclusive story, um, alleging that then-candidate uh, Donald J. Trump, uh, his son, and others in the Trump Organization actually received an email um, around September, so you know, ahead of the election, um, offering uh, a website as well as hacked documents via WikiLeaks. Um, that spoke to, um, you know, congressional, well, an email that was provided to congressional investigators, but actually uh, spoke to the, the nature of the Clinton campaign and, his, and her chairman, uh, John Podesta, who was also uh, um, President Bill Clinton's chief of staff once upon a time. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, at this point, Given that so much has come out about this uh, investigation and this scandal, frankly, um, is a drip like this or the more and more news that we get, is it kind of broadening a story to the American people of, you know, frankly, oh, shit, this this is a a real moment that we need to start paying attention to, even if we don't necessarily care for these uh, politics in Washington day to day? Or is this just another drop in the bucket? Um, No different than, you know, when BuzzFeed published the famous dossier or no different than when we heard about uh, Flynn's indictment. I'm just curious how you think the, the as someone who worked on the intelligence side of the equation, each incremental uh, piece of the puzzle that adds to this broader mosaic. How, how do we as American people interpret that, and how does the world look at that? Right. Well, t- today's news is uh, not unique. Uh, and in fact, it, uh, to my mind at least, it's the latest detail uh, in a long-running storyline uh, that the Trump uh, campaign, the Trump transition, uh, were 
willing to use uh, absolutely any tactics, regardless of uh, legality, but also regardless of propriety, uh, to get ahead during the campaign and to get an edge over their political opponent, uh, to include, uh, at the very least, at the very least, seeking to collude with a foreign adversary, a foreign adversary that, it, again, at the very least, they should have known uh, was meddling in our election to that to that end. Um, so, you know, the, the dossier is one thing, and it's it's gotten a lot of attention. Um, sure. But I think we have to be um, frank that it, it's still, <clears throat> especially the most salacious allegations in there, um, are unproven. Uh, what has been proven beyond a doubt, however, is is what I was just saying. These these long running, uh, at the very least, attempts to collude. We saw that in these tales uh, from uh, Trump Tower meeting in June of 2016. Something we know that happened. Something we know that happened because. Uh, even the president's family have released emails uh, pertinent to it. Uh, we have seen this in uh, President Trump himself publicly on the campaign trail, calling for Russia to uh, find and release the alleged 33,000 missing emails um, from Hillary Clinton's uh, email server. Uh, we saw uh, President then candidate Trump during the final months of the campaign alone uh, reference and praise WikiLeaks. 163 times, uh, again, just during that final 30-day period. Wow. Uh, so time and again, we, we have seen that the Trump team uh, was willing to go to any length. And I think today's news uh, just uh, adds to that. So I, I think, you know, as an intelligence analyst, uh, you look at the quality uh, of information, but also if there are a lot of data points uh, pointing to the same thing, uh, that certainly uh, bolsters your confidence. It bolsters the case uh, that uh, something uh, nefarious uh, was going down. And uh, I think over the course of the past six, seven months especially, uh, we have a uh, bulletproof case that at the very least there were attempts. And I think what Bob Mueller and his team are looking at uh, is whether any of these attempts uh, materialized and if so, um, how that happened and, and what the implications were. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, the, the leadership uh, that's on display right now um, from this country as well as uh, diplomatically. You know, starting first from our own head of state, Donald Trump has, has traded multiple barbs with um, the leader of North Korea. And frankly, you, you have very material concerns, not just in terms of the posturing around the threats of, of you know, nuclear deployment, um, but even residents in, in Guam and Hawaii that are being mindful of, of drills and sounding literal, literal alarms that were used um, to you know, notify potential inbound warheads during World War II uh, being set off to run safety drills for, for residents of those, of those um, states and territories. Uh, is the threat from North Korea being ratcheted up by a new brash voice in American foreign policy, or is this sort of a long time coming and something that we would have seen escalate or come to a head um, regardless, given, given sort of the erratic and irrational behavior of, of Kim Jong-un? Well, I would say it's a little bit of both. Look, I, I, you know, there is a uh, at its core a substantive threat emanating from North Korea. There, there's no denying that. That would have been the case had Hillary Clinton been in office, and it's certainly the case now that Donald Trump is in office. Uh, what I think is unique about this administration, 
uh, is that rather than uh, try to seek uh, peaceful avenues uh, and pursue any and all avenues uh, that could potentially avert a conflict that, uh, by even the most conservative estimates, would result in the deaths of tens of thousands of people on the Korean Peninsula, uh, they have consistently uh, raised the prospect of war, of uh, preventative strike, preventative U.S. strike against uh, North Korea, which, of course, has to be on the table. And uh, the job of the military is to uh, engage in contingency plannings in any number of theaters, including uh, on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, but it's not something that we should be cavalier in speaking about. We should be cavalier in threatening, uh, especially over mediums like Twitter. Um, what is unique about this administration, especially President Trump, is that he has personalized this conflict. Uh, he has personalized it in such a way uh, so as to ratchet up tension, uh, so as to um, in, uh, very purposefully denigrate uh, the North Korean leader, someone uh, whom we know has uh, a very high opinion of himself and someone who uh, does not like to uh, be insulted personally. Just remember what happened in 2014 when a silly Hollywood movie uh, resulted in his uh, cyber attack against Sony Studios, a very destructive attack. Uh, that in some ways could be seen as the first North Korean attack against the United States. Uh, so there was really no strategy uh, behind this. This was President Trump allowing his own ego, which is uh, probably matched only by uh, the ego of Kim Jong-un, uh, to uh, be carried away. And uh, the consequences when your commander-in-chief are more than just a petty uh, war of words or war of tweets on Twitter – uh, the consequences can be uh, much more dire. And, uh, you know, just recently we've heard, um, strangely, the administration even raised the prospect of American athletes not being permitted uh, to go to the South Korean Winter Olympics, which start next month. That's right. Uh, now, That's right. Uh, the, the administration uh, late yesterday ultimately walked that back and indicated they would be allowed to go. But there, once again, the, all these episodes uh, – add to the point that there is no strategy, that this is a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants foreign policy. Uh, and it's not um, just erratic when it comes to uh, soft issues. Uh, it's not uh, just erratic when it comes to issues such as uh, trade and uh, 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 reputational issues. But these are issues of war and peace, uh, and in this case, a war, a potential conflict that, again, would have minimum uh, cost tens of thousands of lives uh, if it were to be initiated. And, you know, you, you mentioned the, the U.S. Olympic or the Olympic participations, um, as well as, you know, whether we stand on the sidelines with, you know, the Russians that were, were banned over um, allegations and findings of, of doping abuses. Um, I'm curious, you know, the voice that, that touted that uh, this week was um, former South Carolinian Governor Nikki Haley and current ambassador to the United Nations. Um, from your perspective, in, in, in a lot of ways, Ambassador Haley's uh, approach, both in terms of the cadence when she speaks to the actual substance of her speeches, they don't tend to be as, uh, you know, uh, full of bluster as maybe the, her, her boss, the president. Um, they tend to be a little uh, measured in tone, perhaps more fitting for the, for the, um, 
the disposition necessary for a UN ambassador. Uh, but when it comes to representing American values on the world stage, particularly at the United Nations, she certainly has a tough job. But in, in recent weeks, um, she has you know had to opine on things like Jerusalem being declared the official capital of Israel, um, you know, certainly opining on whether U.S. Olympiads would, you know, sit on the sidelines with the Russians, ostensibly out of a piece of a sense of solidarity between uh, Trump and Putin. Um, And and she's in in separate from those instances, actually, you know, spoken out when there have been uh, human rights atrocities, for example, um, in in uh, in Burma and Myanmar, sorry, in Myanmar. Um, so I'm curious what your kind of scorecard or your take is on how the U.S. ambassador is doing, principally because you tend to see more of a, a use and flexing of uh, soft power diplomacy from a U.N. ambassador, whereas oftentimes intelligence agencies can leverage hard power when it comes to military might or clandestine operations. Uh, in your worldview, is Nikki Haley doing America a service by trying to to measure or calibrate the tone of Trump's tweets, or she's just as complicit in in sort of his brash approach to foreign policy. Well, she's certainly been dealt uh, a, a tough hand, um, as any ambassador to the UN under this administration uh, would have been. Um, I, I think, insofar as this administration, uh, and we're obviously grading on a curve here. Uh, but you know, I would I would give her relatively high marks uh, for what we have seen her uh, not only say, and, and in terms of her more measured approach, it's not always been entirely measured, but more measured approach. But what she's been able to do, and um, the the effectiveness of her work when it comes to uh, issues such as uh, additional U.S. Security Council resolutions against North Korea, uh, for example. Uh, the strident tone and actions she has taken uh, against uh, the Russian Federation uh, at the UN, uh, what she has tried to do um, when it comes to uh, the ongoing uh, conflict and destruction in Syria, all of those uh, have been admirable. The the interesting, to, to my mind, the interesting element about Ambassador Haley is that Three, four, five months ago, there were rumors uh, in the consistent talk of uh, the so-called Rexit, the, the departure of Rex Tillerson, that <laughs> Nikki Haley would 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 take his place, uh, that she would be uh, the new Secretary of State uh, whenever uh, Tillerson's inevitable departure came about. Uh, that's no longer the case, and, and now you know we're hearing credible rumors that Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, uh, will take over the helm at, at Foggy Bottom, and you have to ask yourself why and. When I when I think back, the Nikki Haley talk really seemed to stop as soon as she spoke up about Charlottesville. And uh, as as it goes with this administration, she did not deliver a forceful uh, speech uh, in defense of the anti-Nazi uh, protesters. She did not castigate the president publicly. Uh, but what she did say, and what she made very clear, she had known. Uh, was that she spoke to the president uh, and, at least privately, uh, disagreed with how he handled that situation. Uh, and she, she said that in no uncertain terms. And almost immediately thereafter, you, all of the talk of Nikki Haley uh, stopped and uh, attention turned to Mike Pompeo as uh, Rex Tillerson's successor. So uh, I can only speculate uh, that 
the uh, part of the reason why is that uh, Trump does not like to be questioned. He sees himself uh, as a modern day uh, sun king, and he sees himself as someone whose judgment uh, goes beyond question and beyond reproach. And what Nikki Haley has done, uh, at least in that one instance, uh, is to question his approach in a subtle but unmistakable way. And so I think that she is in turn paying the price for that. Um, but I think, uh, nonetheless, she has done an effective job uh, at the UN, and we need someone there uh, who uh, can credibly represent the United States to the world. And I think I think she's done uh, again an effective uh, effective job at that. She's also a good messenger uh, for us. Uh, she her story, uh, her 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 background, uh, her uh, her time uh, at the state level. I think represents. Um, a, a good uh, snapshot of what America is and can be. And I think it's, it's in the midst of this administration, I think it's, um, it's good for the world to that. Yeah, and I, I, I think you're absolutely correct that this is a, a very, very difficult role. Um, and the, the nuance is often in the subtlety, as you mentioned. Uh, what isn't so subtle by way of that leadership shuffle, you know, you mentioned um, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson possibly on his way out, uh, current uh, CIA director possibly on his way over to head up the State Department. And it's been rumored, um, although maybe not confirmed, it's been rumored in multiple press reports that um, – the uh, senator, Senator Tom Cotton, might be up for the the role of heading up the CIA um, if the current director departs. Uh, specifically, when it comes to American identity, as we've talked about here, um, a core a core part, as you mentioned, of working up the CIA or frankly just representing American attitude abroad um, has always really been one of inclusivity. It's it's etched in um, in on our Statue of Liberty. Um, it's part of a core narrative of the American ethos of, of welcoming those with all stripes and backgrounds and, and fr in the same way that our own civic experiment in this republic was started um, by coming in from disparate backgrounds. Um, but Senator Cotton, not to politicize the role in any way, but Senator Cotton in his own proposals for what a reformed and strong American immigration system ought to look like, has actually introduced legislation this year, legislation that President Trump uh, endorsed and, and supported publicly that would specifically, uh, for the first time in U.S. history, uh, actually say that in order to immigrate to this country lawfully and efficiently, you need to speak a certain language um, in order to immigrate into this country and get be eligible for certain types of visas. You have to demonstrate an ability to to quickly acquiesce to uh, America's kind of attitude and, and economy and showcase how you will have the skills to integrate into our economy. Um, of course, layer on top of that, you have Donald Trump that has said that in order to even come into this country, you cannot be from certain nations. All told, what does it mean to have a potential leader of our intelligence agency that has done tremendous work over generations for this country and for the world to bring in someone that has a very public attitude about the treatment of people from other countries. Well, you know, this is a, it, it's interesting to come to this part of the conversation uh, because we really circle back to where we were at the start when we were talking about uh, the need for America's intelligence services to represent the best of America on the world stage. And uh, fortunately, uh, over the years since the founding of the CIA in 1947, 
uh, we have had some some fine and admirable leaders uh, uh, do just that. And the men and women women of the CIA, more importantly, those on the ground, uh, have been uh, effective and able uh, and um, respected uh, messengers uh, and um, uh, and and conduits of of, uh, of American ideals on the ground. But in Senator Tom Cotton, we have someone whose policy positions, in some way, in some ways, are at their very core un-American. You reference uh, his immigration proposals, which uh, impose uh, litmus tests on those uh, seeking to come to this country. Uh, he is someone who has argued uh, in favor of keeping open Guan the detention center at Guantanamo Bay, uh, which is a moral blight. Uh, on our uh, on our country, on our reputation, he has um, he has called for the imprisonment of journalists, uh, sought uh, treason charges against uh, two journalists uh, in particular, if I recall, at the New York Times uh, for uh, an article uh, they wrote about a controversial uh, intelligence gathering program. Uh, under the Bush administration, hmm. uh, in terms of his uh, policy chops, he is best known as a critic of uh, the Iran deal. And obviously, there are uh, divergent opinions uh, of the Iran deal. But he became uh, a leader on this issue uh, in 2015 by writing a an open letter to the Ayatollah of Iran, uh, in which he, uh, in a letter that was co-signed by uh, 46 other senators, uh, argued uh, that the Ayatollah should not allow the uh, should not allow the effort to move forward. That the Ayatollah uh, doesn't understand the American system of government, uh, and that he, Tom Cotton, was uh, jumping to the rescue to uh, make sure that he was fully versed on our uh, democracy uh, in a move that was uh, in itself uh, undemocratic and certainly uh, flew in the face of. Uh, the uh, our the our founders' vision of uh, the execution and implementation of foreign policy. Uh, so I think his leadership uh, of the CIA would be a uh, tremendous mistake. Um, it would be something that uh, would set back uh, the CIA even further. He is not someone who is well suited uh, to be at the helm of a dispassionate, apolitical intelligence service. Uh, he is someone who would come to it with. Uh, very strident and, uh, in, in some cases, uh, extraordinarily radical views, views that are, um, in, in some cases, as we've said, quite frankly, un-American. You, you know, in your, after your time serving the American people, um, you transitioned uh, earlier this year um, to be a fellow at the New America Foundation. Uh, you're a professor at George Washington University, and you're a frequent contributor to NBC news and, and other media outlets. Um, I, I'm curious, you, you also kind of point out um, specifically in your, in your, in many instances, as well as codified on your Twitter bio, um, that you're an aspiring public servant again. Um, I think many of us, particularly those of us that, that served in prior administrations um, and that still revel in the, the, the potential and the glory of public service, 
um, are also um, all aspiring public servants. Um, again, you know, regardless of whether we wear a cape um, or we serve our communities, as President Obama has uh, famously said, um, for those that are younger, for those that for the first time are starting to pay attention to how this administration is conducting its foreign policy or how this um, moment in, in cultural time uh, is actually uh, reflecting on things like hate speech um, or pr- police brutality or are, are generally fed up and, and concerned about how America conducts its own politics. Um, what do you say uh, to those younger individuals um, to make sure that we can encourage more of them to think about careers in public service so we have the best and brightest talent working on behalf of the American people and, frankly, citizens around the world? Um, is there a note of encouragement that we can lead them to ensure that more bright and incredible minds like yours end up joining the ranks over time and don't just get turned off by it and end up you know, flooding the, the sectors of consulting or tech or finance or, or other pursuits? Right. Well, since leaving government, I've had the opportunity to meet with uh, a lot of young people, um, young people who are interested in public service, be it in intelligence uh, or diplomacy or uh, something in between. And, and my advice to them, especially those who are coming right out of college, is, is not to let the current administration dissuade them from jumping into the mix immediately. Um, you know, obviously, there are hiring freezes and this administration has done everything it can to uh, see to it that very few people have the opportunity to serve uh, their country, at least in the near term, which is itself a travesty. Um, but, I, you know, I think for people who are just starting out, um, they will outlast uh, this administration. And I am supremely confident. And when this administration is gone, uh, the role of public servants will be even uh, more important and imperative because we'll have a lot of repair to do. Um, the, the President Obama likes to say that, uh, you know, the garden of democracy uh, requires a lot of caretaking and tending to. Uh, and we, uh, the, the, this administration uh, and uh, its most ardent followers have not done that. And uh, it will be up to uh, the team that follows uh, the Trump administration to get back to that. And it will require uh, ingenuity and creativity and drive and ambition uh, that young people uh, and aspiring uh, public servants uh, will be able to bring to the table. So for those people who are just graduating now and and are looking at entry-level jobs in government, uh, you know, I've told them uh, to to, to go for it. Uh, For it, mindful of their own um, personal red lines when it comes to something they would be asked to do. Um, but at it, the, the lowest levels of government, um, you know, you're probably not going to see too much difference between an, a, Repu- a Republican and Democratic administration. Uh, this administration may be in some ways anomalous, so that's why they need to go in there with their own red lines uh, clear in their own minds. Uh, but once this team is gone, it's going to be up to all of us uh, to uh, get back to the work uh, that I know a lot of us have tried to carry on from the outside, um, uh, perches that are uh, much less, um, uh, much less conducive uh, to um, uh, overnight change, but, uh, where change can still be achieved. Um, but we'll be able, to, all of us collectively, to uh, return to doing the work um, that uh, will be required, and there will be a lot of it. So it's going to be even more important uh, in the coming years that we have a cadre, a large cadre of talented, young, ambitious people uh, who want to. 
uh, take part uh, in this broad effort. I couldn't agree more, and I, and I think that the all of us, you know, whether we're using a microphone to to shed light on these issues, um, or we're we're signing up for federal service, um, you know, can can inform one another the power of what all of this means, particularly if we want to kind of safeguard our American identity and the American ideals that that you and your colleagues um, fought for for so long. Uh, Ned Price, thank you so much for for joining the uh, the podcast today and and wishing you and and all of your your former and present colleagues a happy holiday. Thanks so much, Vikram, and same to you and uh, best of luck. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Theme music by Chris Thomas, edited by Mark Rako. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.